Allen Ginsberg had decided that he wanted to become a poet, but of course, being a poet didn't pay anything. So he had to have jobs. Bill Morgan was Allen Ginsberg's archivist and biographer. Allen tried everything. He tried being a dishwasher, he was fired. He tried working in a ribbon factory in Patterson, he was fired. Every job he wasn't cut out for. But at one point, he got a job, a temporary job in market research. He was pretty good at that because he knew about words and their meanings. And he always joked that one of his earliest jobs required him to do a survey to find out whether people wanted Ipana toothpaste to make their teeth bright or luxurious. And he determined that people didn't want luxurious teeth because it reminded them of fur, and nobody would want furry teeth. So Ipana then used the term bright for their commercials. But through that knowledge of working in market research, Allen really was able to then proselytize, if you, if you will, the beat generation later on. In his most recent book, The Typewriter is Holy, Bill Morgan tells the story of how the Beat Generation came to be. And while it's hard to imagine characters like Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg not becoming famous, Bill Morgan believes that Ginsberg's knowledge of market research enabled him to make the most of the media's crass generalizations of what he and his friends were doing. Allen Ginsberg always embraced the the term beat generation, whereas most of his friends and the other writers didn't. Uh, In fact, a lot of them deny that they were ever part of the beat generation. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Gary Snyder, uh, Jack Kerouac certainly didn't like what what happened with the term beat, and so everyone else wanted to get away from that term. Burroughs certainly never thought he was a member of any generation, beat or otherwise. But Allen really realized that a group of writers working together could make a bigger splash in the world, had a better chance of getting published, and therefore a better chance of getting their word out if they worked together as a group. So when the media began using the term beat generation, Allen didn't run away from it. He always brought his friends along and he said, well, you're going to have me, why not have Gregory Corso and why not have uh, William Burroughs on the same bill? Remember, it was Allen who got William Burroughs' first book published, and it was Allen who took copies of On the Road Around to publishers in a knapsack trying to get them interested originally. Uh, He always was based in the literature, but it certainly didn't hurt him that he knew how to approach publishers and how to talk to magazine editors. He was really a genius at working with the media in that way, and I think a lot of it stems from market research. My idea was, if you got to do something really crazy, then people will remember your name. The first thing I did, I... um, I put myself naked, tied up all around the East Village as an advertisement for a show. Today, Richard Kern enjoys international acclaim for his outrageous photographs of naked women. But in the 1980s, he was a central figure in a group of underground New York filmmakers, the cinema of transgression. The little attention he, Lydia Lunch, and Nick Zed did get from the press was overwhelmingly bad, but they soldiered on supporting each other, acting and assisting both on camera and behind the scenes. And as a group, they pushed the boundaries of sex, violence, and bad taste. 
it wasn't it wasn't quite that romantic though at the time i for example was a heroin addict and uh, there was a lot of drugs around and we were also desperate for some people to hang out with that were like us but there wasn't a like we're sitting around thinking we're the cinema of transgression that that whole idea was belonged to nick zed and he even wrote a manifesto as someone else and he wrote uh, criticism about the cinema transgression under different names and his whole idea was if if they have a title for you they can pigeonhole you into some group and once you they can pigeonhole you then they remember you and I'm like yeah Nick whatever I just want to make movies I don't really care but we were actually hanging out you know it's like hey what are you doing today let's make a movie that kind of stuff Also, I think at that time, I had I had a pretty good job and I had some money, so people were gravitating a bit towards me because I could pay for their films. And the films cost nothing. It wasn't like I was a millionaire, but I was able to pay for some of the films. And Nick looked at me like he does everyone and said, "Oh, would you like to make a movie together?" Which meant, "Can you pay for one of my ideas to be put on film?" When I first met Nick Zed, I was working on this film called um, The Manhattan Love Suicides, and the idea behind that film was going to be everyone in it is so in love, they, they, they're so in love with their other person that they're going to kill themselves because they can't handle being in, so in love. And I told this to Nick, and he said, well, I've got a great idea, I've got this film I want to make where I play both the man and the woman, and I kill myself at the end. I thought, oh, that's great. So, um, and he said, by the way, why don't we co-direct it? And then his other thing was that he would, anytime he was in a film, he said he directed it. One, one thing that um, I'll say about the movement is it was really, we were really despised by any of the newspapers or can name like Jay Hoberman for the Village Voice was one of my heroes growing up. I'd read his criticism all the time. I was just like every you know this guy knows everything. His first review of the right side of my brain, he just laid into me about being being a misogynistic, sexist, uh, cliche, and on and on and on. And I was like, fuck that guy, <laughs> fuck him. I'll never read him again. He sucks. Nick Zed's marketing ideas may have failed with the media during the heyday of the movement, but the group did go on to become famous with the publication in 1995 of Jack Sargent's book, Death Tripping, The Cinema of Transgression. It turns out that critics and historians are into groups too, perhaps even more than the media. All these historians and critics and all of them in every genre, they're looking for some group to make themselves the authority on and Jack became you know one for us it's just funny the stuff you hate the most now you can be sure down the road somebody's going to be worshipping it
Perhaps the most absurd group ever concocted is outsider art. Because the outsider artist is by definition someone who makes art that's outside. Not only the mainstream, but the art world as well. An outsider artist is someone who's usually self-taught and someone who's doing his or her own thing. So the idea of a group of outsider artists is just as ridiculous as that scene in The Life of Brian, when Brian addresses the crowd outside his window that thinks he's the Messiah and cries out, You need to think for yourself. You're all individuals. To which the crowd replies, The idea that somehow self-taught or outsider work should look like something particular is just like we want to put words and names and ideas on just about everything we do. You know, it's like cars, DeSotos, although that tells my age when I say that. I don't think they have DeSotos anymore, right? <laughs> Studebakers, I could have gone to that. <laughs> right? Don't put this in there, okay? You do edit, don't you? Roger Rico is one of the owners of the Rico Maresca Gallery which for over 30 years now has been championing outsider art and selling a lot of it, especially in the 1990s when a few mentally ill artists became celebrated for their outsider cred and direct connection to the inner psyche. Roger Rico says it's not like that anymore. Nowadays, of course, people who end up in for whatever reason in mental situations, mental institutions and whatever, are given medication so the drive or the need is kind of drugged out of them, and I've seen this myself, by the way. It's not like, I mean, I asked an artist, well, why don't you do it anymore? Well, ever since I've been taking the Thorazine, you know, it's, my hands are thick and I can't work anymore. <laughs> or, you know, I don't care. I stopped by the gallery to talk about Ed Welsh, a 94-year-old former sign painter whose large story portraits are currently on display. Ed Welsh paints his African-American heroes like Stevie Wonder, Roy Wilkins, and Joe Lewis in a style I would call Coney Island slideshow banner with flowers and glitters thrown in for good measure. Most of the pictures are pretty amazing, but one still haunts me. It depicts Betty Shabazz being burned to death by her deranged grandson, who omits a scribble as he throws silver glitter on the very unhappy-looking wife of Malcolm X. But as out there as this picture might sound, Roger Rico went out of his way to sell Ed Welsh as anything but an outsider. Ed Welsh comes in from an almost a whole other, what I'd call a contemporary kind of, of a look. In fact, his work, his, his technique is utterly contemporary in that he was a sign painter by trade. He's got the skill to paint lettering or even to use, you know, the paste up lettering and so forth or the built out lettering. Well, for example, here's Paul Robeson, you know, man of many talents, singer, actor, sportsman, activist, lawyer. I didn't even know he was a lawyer, my gosh. And in this, he shows all, Ed Wells shows in this picture uh, his various talents, you know, playing baseball and basketball and what have you. And so there's kind of a story or a narrative going on, which is, I think, true of all of these pictures. He takes this this admiration, this uh, love of these people, and puts it into pictures, and the pictures are just almost really like as if you were advertising them on a marquee. So I see him as an extraordinarily contemporary artist. As far as I can tell, the reason Roger Rico pushes Ed Welsh as an artist and not an outsider artist 
is because the outsider art market did not survive the Great Recession. Sure, a few self-taught artists like Grandma Moses and Henry Darger still command six figures apiece, but everyone else? Well, I think it's safe to say that it's just not lucrative anymore to be an outsider artist. I'd like to get them out of the club because then when they're out of the club, A, there's far more recognition because the club for people of people who are interested and only by this type of work is very small, we would not be surviving. And the big success for us is any time that one of our artists who is called outsider may actually be outsider and so forth is acquired by uh, someone who's a modern a contemporary collector. This is the big hit. I mean, I go out and have, you know, pizza or something like that. <laughs> and I'm lactose intolerant. So. <laughs> In some ways, the outsider market grew up, and in some ways, it was defeated by its own success because. Jane Collier is one of the directors of the Gallery Saint Etienne, one of the world's first galleries to specialize in outsider and self taught art. In fact, her grandfather, Otto Collier, discovered Grandma Moses. I caught her at JFK just as she was about to take off for an art buying trip in Europe. I couldn't get her to laugh, though, at my joke that she might discover the next Grandma Moses. Because, like Roger Risco, Jane Collier believes the outsider market has been totally destroyed by market forces. But at the same time, she says actual outsider artists can exist without the market. I want to believe that great art will eventually be found and recognized. But you have to realize that one of the criteria for being an outsider artist is that you don't want to be recognized. You don't care. So being indifferent, in a sense, is, is part of the whole picture. You know, it's the only field of art in which, by definition, the artists are not allowed to play a role in their own reception or recognition. And so they're very much at, at, at the mercy of art world forces that can be both positive and negative at varying times or combine elements of both at the same time. So what then are you looking for? What you're looking for is artists who create outside of the mainstream, who don't have any overt consciousness of their even being in art world. They're just driven to tr create by their own uh, inner compulsions. When the field gets overpopulated, overhyped, overpopular, that degree of innocence is inevitably corrupted. For example, I mean, we all, all, all the dealers in this field, we, we get uh, emails and letters from, from people, you know, who have business cards that read Joe Blow Outsider Artist. And Joe Blow Outsider Artist, of course, also has a website. And uh, you begin to, you know, to wonder just how authentic that is. You sound kind of jaded, Jane. I'm disgusted by it. It's, it's not a question of being jaded. It's it's it, it it's a kind of a travesty. 
Jane Collier and Roger Risco both confirmed my suspicions. The outsider art thing is definitely over. Which is a shame. Because, well, my dear listener, the outsider art thing was my plan B. You see, this volunteer community radio stuff, while tons of fun, doesn't pay the bills. And thus, there's been growing pressure to come up with, you know, a plan B. A way to make a living. And I had the best plan B ever. I was going to create a fake outsider artist whose work I could then pass off to the unsuspecting art market for a bazillion dollars. I know you're probably laughing at me right now, but hear me out. It's not as ridiculous as it sounds. The most famous outsider artist of them all is Henry Darger, the janitor who secretly wrote and drew a 15,000-page story called In the Realms of the Unreal. There's never been an outsider art find like this. Hundreds of giant paintings of little girls with penises frolicking with dragons and fighting soldiers. If you know anything about Henry Darger, then you know that it wasn't until after his death that his landlord, Nathan Lerner, found all the manuscripts, collages, and watercolors, and that most of these paintings are now housed in important museums and collections and sell for millions of dollars. What you might not know is that Henry Darger's landlord, Nathan Lerner, was himself an artist and a designer, credited, in fact, with the creation of the plastic bear-shaped honey bottle, one of the most iconic consumer products of the 20th century. Now, I've spent a lot of time meditating over this strange juxtaposition, a plastic bear-shaped honey bottle on the one side and an image of Henry Darger and his little girls with penises on the other. Hidden in this juxtaposition, I believe, is the secret to creativity a secret Nathan Lerner had direct access to. He was able to see the beauty and power of both the plastic bear-shaped honey bottle and Henry Darger. A few years ago, during one of my meditation sessions, I was struck with a strange idea. Since the plastic bear-shaped honey bottle was a work of genius that sprung from the mind of Nathan Lerner, could not Henry Darger have as well. What if Nathan Lerner created all the artwork himself and the backstory? Now, there's absolutely no evidence that Nathan Lerner did this, and I assure you, I really don't think that he made Henry Darger up. I'm speaking to you now from the pure realm of the unreal, the speculative what if. But this what if led me eventually to why not? And so, for the past few years, I've been creating my own Henry Darger. Creating an outsider artist is a very liberating activity. There are no references you need to worry about, no appropriations to fret over. You even get to control your own context. It's total and complete artistic freedom. I created this outsider artist that truly saw the world in a unique and individual fashion. And the work? Man, I tell you, these word painting collage nudist cubist things I made? 
they would have made me a millionaire. But alas, I miss the boat. No one wants that sort of thing anymore. Everyone's already moved on to the next big thing. They stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. Would you have mansions of gold in the sky and live in the shack away in the back? Would you have wings up in heaven to fly and starve here with rags on your back? There is power, there is power in the band of working men When they stand hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand If you've had enough of the blood of the lamb Then join in the grand industrial band If for a change you would have eggs and ham Then come do your share like a man there is power, there is power in the band of working men When they stand hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand If you like slubbers to beat off your head Then don't organize, all unions despise If you want nothing before you are dead Shake hands with your boss and look wise there is power, there is power in the band of working men When they stand hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand Oh come all ye workers from every land Come join in the grand industrial band Then we our share of this earth shall demand Come on, do your share like a man there was power, there was power in the band of working men When they stand hand in hand That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land One industrial union grand One industrial union grand Unions have never been a very good fit with them in America. There's something about them, something about the collective of a collective of workers who are making demands and seeking social and economic justice for themselves and others. It's not something that sits well with a lot of people because America is a very individual-oriented country. Philip Dre is the author of There is Power in a Union, a new book that tells the history of organized labor 
in America. It's an epic tale that not only documents some of the major struggles between labor and capital, but it also documents the struggle for organized labor to find its own voice. One of the first causes that labor embraced in the textile mills of New England was not about money, it was about hours. Uh, they were working 12, 14-hour days, and it was, it was ridiculous. It was, no human being could do it, it, could work in a factory that long standing at a loom. And what they couched their argument in was very something very acceptable, really, which was that we want to have more time to become better citizens, to go to the library and read books, to, to go to church and worship, or even to go be consumers and go, we want to buy the products we ourselves make, and we are not giving us enough time to even do that. I mean, in some cases, the women who worked in those mills said, you're not giving us time to even eat lunch. We can't even, like, properly digest our food because you're giving us, like, 15 minutes to eat. And those were very, those there was nothing radical about. In fact, those were very compelling arguments. And a lot of people, the, the success, in a way, of what they called the shorter hours movement was based on the fact that hardly anyone could avoid or ignore some of these arguments, which were very basic and compelling. And so that was always sort of labor's goal, whether or not it was properly articulated. I think a lot of times it was lost, that more mainstream message was lost because of the louder rhetoric and more sort of compelling or distorting rhetoric of radicalism, anarchists who would print, you know, like to arms, to arms, working men and this kind of thing. But even many of these so-called radical groups, from everything from the Communist Party to the Wobblies to anarchists, very often, despite their rhetoric, on the ground, day to day, what they were doing was just very good, often just very good labor organizing. Like the Bread and Roses strike of 1912 in Lawrence, Mass., which is considered one of the great labor successes of all time, was managed by the Wobblies. These people who wanted to get rid of capitalism and all kinds of things and would say outrageous things and they called themselves outlaws. But really, they just got right down to it and organized, helped organize the strike of many diverse immigrant groups. They won this tremendous victory over the textile mills of Lawrence, Mass. And that was just basic union organizing. They were basically just involved in helping improve workers' lives. But I think the rhetoric has often been very off-putting to people. As we know, America has always had this kind of twitchy reaction to anything foreign, communist, um, uh, anything could set it off. A good example is the Molly Maguires, who may or may not have been a group of Irish working brigands who lived in the mountains of the coal mountains of Pennsylvania in the 1870s. Um, essentially, there was a very, at the time, there was a very effective coal miners union in the region, but there was also the Pennsylvania Railroad, headed by a man named Franklin B. Gowan, who opposed the Union, and he had the insight to try to taint the Union with the fact that there was a kind of an outlaw underclass in this area, and he succeeded. And, uh, you know, he, he basically kind of concocted this entire far-flung fantasy of uh, violence and sort of midnight murder being carried out by this group, the Molly Maguires, who were named for a legendary uh, female Irish uh, resistance fighter. And, uh, you know, it proved very effective. And there were huge state, uh, show trials. Uh, about 20 Molly Maguires were executed. Uh, and the union was broken. In other words, the actual miners' union was broken. And so the Pennsylvania Railroad you know, achieve total dominance of the coal mining region. Gowan is just one titan of industry who uses the army and the courts to destroy the union. 
By the end of the 19th century, factory owners and railroad tycoons were regularly answering union demands with Gatling guns and Pinkerton truncheons. But the darkest days are still to come. 1919 proved a critical year for labor in that you had unemployment relating to the downturn in production from the end of the war. You had returning war veterans who had no jobs. Um, you also had, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution, which had actually taken place abroad and was seen as a workers' revolution, and with which, to be honest, some groups in America did relate to, and they, they took an inspiration from it. Well, all this combined, then you add to that the actual existence of an anarchist cell based in Brooklyn that was actually sending pipe bombs to people. And they even bombed the house of the Attorney General of the United States, A. Mitchell Palmer. A. Mitchell Palmer then, with the urging of the press and Congress, who gave him a lot of money, and he had an eager young assistant named J. Edgar Hoover, who would later become infamous, set out to break American radicals and labor radicals as well. And the Palmer raids were a series of devastating police raids and, and Justice Department raids on suspected foreign entities, labor movement, etc. You know, they were deporting someone who just maybe had come from, so, from Russia and who taught square dancing at the local community center on the Lower East Side, you know, shipped then was shipped away. A lot of uh, people's rights were just uh, uh, taken away. At the same time, the United States Justice Department went after the Wobblies, who were at that time a huge, sort of one of the more successful large labor syndicates, I guess you'd call it, and really succeeded. They, they indicted more than 100 of, of the IWW's leaders. Uh, it wound up being like a lot of trials of labor people who were considered radical. The prosecution just wound up basically reading from books about their cause as if that would indict them. And of course, it often was enough. Um, there was no evidence that they had really done anything wrong. It's just that they were seen as being dangerous. It proved very easy to do and resulted in not only a lot of actual damage in terms of raids and deportations and even executions, um, but it had the effect of inhibiting the labor movement and the left overall. The anti-labor fervor of industry with its sort of government handholders or the police uh, also extended to uh, vigilante groups and sort of so-called loyalty leagues and patriot groups. You know, the American Legion started out in the wake of the First World War, and one of its major, its first preoccupations was to help defeat radicalism among labor unions. And so you'd often find American Legion members involved in these efforts to suppress uh, labor organizing. And what you see during this period, of course, is that a total a trampling, really, of people's civil liberties and, and civil rights, um, and not much of a response, really, from, say, the federal government. Uh, there were several infamous incidents. There was this incident in, uh, in Arizona where suspected members of the Wobblies, about 1,200 of them, were simply rousted out of bed, put on a freight train on a hot, sweltering day, and deported to some empty part of the desert in New Mexico and just basically left there. Luckily, they were, they were able to go to an army base and they didn't perish or anything, but, you know, and immediately the protests were made to the federal government, like, what is going on here? You can't do this. is America. You can't just pick up a labor movement, an organization, and put it on a freight train and move it. But that's what had happened. And, of course, the, res the reaction from the federal government was to open an investigation of the Wobblies. So 
you know, it's like you're between, literally between trapped between a rock and a hard place. And you saw this continually. And I think it's epitomized by this quote that you hear uh, during the Patterson uh, Silk Strike of 1913, where Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who's this very wonderful, dynamic, young, wobbly, uh, they called her a soapboxer because she was such a great speaker. Um, but, you know, she ran up against the police chief of uh, Patterson, a man named John Bimson, who was like a petty tyrant and could get away with almost anything. And he even said, he announced, he said, we may be compelled to do things which we would not have legal grounds for doing in normal times. And when Elizabeth Gurley Flynn said to him, well, you're, you're breaking the law, you're trampling on our rights, he said to her, you may have the rights, but we have the power. But the police pogroms and vigilante massacres just aren't powerful enough. The unions continue to make demands. And as America enters the progressive era, their message begins to resonate with politicians. Some capitalists change tactics and replace the stick with a carrot. In the 20s, you had what was known as corporate welfare, where the companies themselves said, well, we'll keep our workers happy. That's the way to defeat unionism, is we'll give them all sorts of, we'll have picnics, and we'll give them some benefits, and we'll even create company unions, which are meant to represent them, but actually we sort of control. And that actually did inhibit unionism for really the whole decade of the 20s. And it's one reason why unions were sort of, when the Depression started, they were at sort of a low ebb. But eventually, of course, that was seen as hollow because this corporate welfare, because it was only as strong as the companies were. And when the companies hit bad economic times, the first thing to go was the vacations and the picnics and things for the softball teams for the workers. So the workers very quickly saw that that was not a, a permanent a permanent answer. So there you sort of see the beginning of the sort of acknowledgement of, ah, laissez-faire is not also good. You know, in an era before unemployment and Social Security and FDIC and all the other protections we take for granted, when you were out of work, you you and your family were were out. You know, that was it. There was no there was no safety net. There was no bottom aside from what you might, you know, maybe you could be allowed to sleep in the police precinct station or something like that or a church might give you something to eat, but you know, nobody gave the labor movement anything. They've, every piece are just people had to fight for these things. It took years, an embarrassing number of years, in many cases, to, to keep children out of a factory. I mean, you know, I mean, in the 19-teens, uh, investigators in New York were finding children as young as three working in canneries in upstate New York. I mean, the idea that you'd put a three-year-old child to work in a cannery and make them work 11 hours a day. I don't even know how you would do that. I mean, if anyone has tried to control a three-year-old recently, knows it's almost impossible. But. It is kind of embarrassing that it takes America so long to get laws outlawing three-year-olds working in factories on the books. But in the 1930s, labor reform becomes a major plank in Roosevelt's New Deal, and many laws are passed, including the Wagner Act, which guarantees collective bargaining. Power has now changed hands. That was a great, you know, that was that was a uh, sort of a very, very positive era for labor, and many people remember it. So labor membership, I mean, the membership in unions grew incredibly during this period. And even John O. Lewis, who was a great labor leader, sort of paraphrased uh, the New Deal by saying, President Roosevelt wants you to join a union, which Roosevelt hadn't actually said, but he got away, Lewis got away with that. And, you know, people flooded into labor unions because suddenly they saw that, yes, labor unions... They're being 
supported by the government, the president backs them, and they saw that this was a way to uh, the American dream, essentially. Um, well, the other half of it, though, that was great is that the, some of the corporations got on board, too. Uh, you had U.S. Steel and the car, the car industry, the auto industry. And uh, one of the most dramatic episodes in this was the big uh, United Auto Workers sit-down strike of 1937 in Flint, Michigan against General Motors. General Motors was clueless, you know, because they were still thinking the old way. And they were like, well, we're not going to talk to a union. We're not going to sit down. We'll deal with the workers directly. We know their grievances. Let them come to us. We don't need a union involved. Well, of course, the workers said boo to that. And what was ingenious about it is instead of the old pattern of going outside the plant and marching and picketing and throwing rocks or whatever, uh, they hit upon an idea which was to sit in, to just not leave the factories at all. So the workers occupied several Chevrolet factories, as it turned out, in Flint, Michigan, and refused to leave until they could negotiate with management. Well, this was a, was a great, a wonderful idea and a great challenge because it stymied in other words, the usual sort of hard-ass tactics of the authorities, which would be to send in the police or the National Guard, they couldn't do it because the workers were in the factory and the owners didn't want the factory destroyed. In fact, the insurance company uh, of General Motors said, when General Motors said, well, we'll turn off the heat, that'll drive them out. And the insurance company came along and said, whoa, 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 you don't do that because then they're going to start fires to keep warm. So General Motors found itself kind of its hands were tied. And even, you know, the governor of Michigan said, I'm not going to send the National Guard in there because it's just going to be a bloody mess. And also, it should be said that, you know, like the governor of Michigan was sympathetic to the New Deal, like a lot of people were. And they were saying to GM, we don't support you. You've got to, you know, the Wagner Act is law. These people, all they're asking for is collective bargaining. They're not asking for anything that's radical. They're asking for something that is guaranteed by law. And so we want you to get on board as well. And so eventually, there were some dramatic scenes. There was a terrible uh, uh, battle between the auto workers and the police who tried to raid. It's called the, I think, the running of the bulls, they call it, because the workers had prepared. You know, the workers, when the workers occupy their own factory, who knows it? But they know the factory better than anybody else. So they had built all these unique defense uh, ramparts, and they had collected these huge auto door hinges, which weigh about a pound each and could be hurled from the upper windows down on the heads of the police. So basically, the, the workers succeeded in repelling two police assaults and attempts to retake the factories. So finally, General Motors gave up. They said, okay. So they, they, they you know, capitulated. When I told my friend Tom that I was interviewing Philip Dre about his book on labor history, he joked, how many pages does he devote to the stuff that happens after Flint? Seven? Four? Three? It's definitely one of the shorter chapters in the book, but Philip Dre does touch on a few of the more unseemly episodes of labor's recent past. In the 1960s, the AFL-CIO works with the CIA to quash labor unrest all over Latin America. In the 1970s, a union beats up a bunch of students protesting the Vietnam War and then presents President Nixon with an honorary hard hat. 
In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan not only kills off a whole union of air traffic controllers, but he also takes away their life savings and retirement funds. For Philip Dre, this tragic decline of labor begins in the 1950s, when the unions now flush with power, cash, and influence, elect a new type of leader. For the first time, you had labor leaders who had never been rank-and-file themselves. They were executives, basically. They wore flashy rings. They went to Miami Beach for their meetings. Uh, just as a public image thing, it didn't look right. They also were charismatic figures who controlled huge sums of money. They demanded the fierce loyalty of their followers. Uh, and, of course, not a lot of questions were often asked about what was going on at the top. Um, and so it was a recipe for disaster in a way, because no sooner had unions moved out of the shadow of communism than they <clears throat> fell prey to the accusations of corruption. And of course, there always had been corruption in labor unions just because of their nature. Some unions, you know, dock workers, unions that dealt with a kind of transient economy, this kind of thing. Um, but this really kind of blew up in the 1950s with these famous televised investigations. First, the Estes Kiefhofer investigation of organized crime, which had links to labor. Then you had just, there was also just sort of the kind of more garden variety corruption of labor leaders who were not themselves really criminals, but they just were like amateur criminals. They were just dipping into the place's funds. They shouldn't have using it for their own expenses. Um, but this resulted in these very infamous uh, public scandals, which tainted labor in a way almost more devastating than communism. I find that even today, what we're like 50 years beyond the Jimmy Hoffa investigations of the late 1950s, but what still when you mention you wrote a book about labor, people say, aha, but how about Jimmy Hoffa? And I think it's sort of unjust, obviously, because I think for every Jimmy Hoffa, for every article we still read about corruption in labor movements, there are hundreds of local labor organizations that function perfectly legitimately. And for that matter, what sector of American life has been tainted by some kind of corruption? It's even, you know, sports, Congress, the White House, uh, even the church. Uh, and so I don't think it's quite fair, but I think what it does show is there's a suspicion or in a readiness to believe things about labor movements. So that when you talk about corruption, or just like with communism, it kind of, ooh, it spreads, it catches very quickly. And I think because there is this kind of instinctive kind of suspicion about what these collectives of workers are up to and what they want, that when you start, when it's revealed that someone is dipping into the health fund to pay for a vacation to Bermuda or what have you, people are inclined to think, oh, labor, big labor, It's we can't trust but, it. But is it just a matter of trust? I mean, what if it's more that the union accomplished what it set out to do, but failed to think out what it could or should do next? I mean, when union leader Samuel Gompers is asked, what does the union want? He answers, more. More? Well, he, he kind of elaborated on it, but his quote has been sort of distorted. In other words, people often say he just said more, which, of course, makes him sound greedy. But he really, the quote he gave is very, very beautiful, really. Based, it's sort of more opportunity to, again, in this same vein, more opportunity to become fully realized people, to become part of a democracy. We want to be able to uh, raise our children correctly and to dream about the future I mean, it could be in a certain way that what, in a larger sense, what happened was that the historic labor movement, as we think of it, sort of became obsolete. In other words, 
because the na nature of industry changed, tech, all this labor-saving technology has come along, obviously, with computers in the last 30, 40 years, globalization itself, which then kind of undercuts a lot of American unionism because there's always non-union, low-paid labor abroad that these multinational companies can go to. Labor just hasn't been able to react to that. And labor is always on the defensive, reacting to capital in a sense, because ca it's capital that's always moving ahead, opening a new mill, what have you, moving the mill to North Carolina from New England. And so labor always has to sort of play catch up. This time, of course, it's a huge thing to catch up to because they have to adapt to new technology and greater sophistication on the part of corporations to sort of defy unionism. In other words, the use of contingency workers like temps, part-time workers who have no benefits, but also the fact that, you know, now individuals will often, you know, they don't work eight hours, just eight hours anymore. They'll work 10 or 12. They want to get ahead. It's almost that kind of rejection of the whole notion of unionization. Um, I know I, I worked, I've worked places where the shop steward will come around and tell you to leave at a certain time. They don't want you to stay after your, because they don't want to set an, an example, a bad example. They want you to work just your hours. Of course, it's always easy to be cynical and say, well, workers are just going to have to put up with the corporate domination of the entire world and we're all you know, screwed or whatever. But I think there is a kind of universal, renewable principle that people will only take so much. You know, people will eventually turn to their collective might if they're wage workers and resist what they're asked to put up with. And then in a way, that's the heart of labor unionism. <laughs> and so I think it is something that lives on. Uh, I think the next 10 or 20 years will probably tell us how, how it might transition, what it might be. Uh, in America, labor, organized labor was asked to transition a few different times and did manage to do it, whether it was going from a local phenomenon to a national, from craft orientation to industrial, uh, and so on. And so they have been able to adapt and, and, and show themselves pliable and flexible in those ways. Whether they can do it again, we don't know. I do think it'll be you know half a century from now when people are sitting around talking about what organized labor is doing. I imagine it'll be like in a context that is far different than even what we can imagine. This is how Groupon works. We sell things to do in your city. We try and find fun things or things that uh, maybe you haven't tried before, like uh, uh, $50 off of a, of a good restaurant in your city that maybe you've heard about but you've never tried, and we'll sell it to you for $20. We make the deal really cheap, and we only sell them for one day to kind of give you that, light that fire under your seat to get out and try it. But uh, if a minimum number of people don't buy the deal, then no one gets it. If you want something bad enough, it's not enough to just buy it yourself, but you have to make sure enough other people, you have to tell your friends and tell them to tell their friends. But once you hit that threshold, or what we, what we call the tipping point, um, then everyone's going to get a great deal at a great price. Joe Harrow is the head of customer service for Groupon, one of the Internet's fastest-growing businesses. Groupon is a company that harnesses the power of crowds for specialized online shopping. We feature services primarily on Groupon and, and not stuff. And that's because we, um, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to find, we're trying to provide people who live in the cities that we're in uh, with an experience, right? And experience is usually more related to, you know, service than stuff. Um, we've, we've had a lot of success with like skydiving, 
we've, we've lately kind of gotten into uh, race car driving um, lessons or like opportunities where you can, you know, ride a race car or a, or a Ferrari around a track for an hour or, or whatever. To, we've done some weird things in Chicago. We, we ran a business that we, we talk about all the time because it was kind of cool. We, we featured a sensory deprivation tank business. So this is you, uh, um, you climb into this case with no light and no sound you're floating in salt water so you can't feel anything you can't smell anything and you i guess you meditate in the tank for about an hour it's a cool thing that probably nobody ever heard of and there's a lot of other services like the more generic spa and restaurant um services which are, are kind of more generic more generic in what they are but we get to expose people to new spas or new restaurants or or businesses in the area that they're not familiar with groupon's home base is chicago but in less than a year, they've opened up shop in over a hundred North American cities. They've even gone international. And since Joe is one of founder and CEO Andrew Mason's original hires, he's gotten to witness the blow up firsthand. It, it is, it is still a little bit surreal. I, uh, I, I look, I look around at just the size of the customer service team, um, and today we have about eighty-five people. A year ago today, I think we had six. You know, it, it's hard not to remember how recently we were small and how recently we were obscure and how recently we weren't sure if it was going to work or not. Um, the general tone of the customer service um, uh, conversations we have with people are people saying like, hey, I love Groupon and, and they're calling with, with positive attitudes generally. And that's, that, that makes an exciting place to work. That means that we're working for our customers. It turns out that Groupon is an actual runaway success. You see, Joe and his colleagues first built an online platform for group action, something they called The Point. I think like any good business, we all started trying to uh, fundamentally change society, right? (laughs) So The Point was a a platform that we launched. The idea was to, to fundamentally change the way that people go about solving the problems in their lives. Um, uh, it was it was kind of we, we were we were kind of acknowledging that the way that groups make decisions is changing, right? Where maybe it used to be more formal organizations and and unions and things like that. Um, we're a lot more individual now, and we're able to network around a certain cause with the internet in ways we couldn't. And we wanted to harness that power in ways that hadn't been done yet. But we, we didn't have it totally mapped out when we started. We had, a, we had a good idea of some of the things we wanted, and we knew we were building this, this really open platform with a lot of potential. So we had that, and we started thinking like, okay, we have this platform. It can do a lot of things. What we don't have at all, and we've never had, is a business model. And all of a sudden, kind of, figuring out how to make money started to matter. Um, so uh, Aaron With he came up with the name. He was our, he's now our, at the time he was a community manager for, for The Point, and now he's our, our, actually our editor-in-chief. And he just took the word group and coupon and put it together. I, I would say the decision to name it Groupon from the time the name was thought of to the time the decision made was made was probably about seven minutes, maybe four, maybe three. You know, the drawing the parallel between people buying things and people doing things, it's, it's a difficult one. But I, but I think you can make the point that people are starting to, to use the Internet for more than just the obvious, like more than just communicating or really basic information sharing. It's, it's really about the, the power of the Internet to, to do things. People will get online and do things en masse. People will res- respond to a message that's online. Um, people will move in waves. 
online that maybe the same way they did 50 years ago, um, kind of in the streets. I, I think with the success of Groupon, you could say um, online, online activism has, has a future. And if nothing else, it's something we can brag about. This episode of Too Much Information is called And One for All. It was produced by myself with Bill Bowen, and it featured Bill Morgan, Richard Kern, Roger Rico, Jane Collier, Philip Dre, and Joe Harrow. You can find links and images on the TMI playlist page, as well as listen to archives and subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that at WFMU.org.